Hey everyone. Due to technical difficulties, we were not able to upload the sermon from January 8th, but the sermon is available on our live stream on either our YouTube page or our Facebook page. The links for both of those pages are in the description below. We apologize for any inconveniences. But now, on to this week's message. Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and the message is called, Jesus, Threat to Your Life or Lord of Your Life. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Pray our hearts will be opened to receive truth, to be convicted by your word, and that by your strength we would repent and turn from our sin and look to the glory of Jesus Christ who heals our deepest sickness, which is sin and separation from you. Lord, may we worship you today, God, and learn from your word everything we need to hear. So God, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are joined by several children today. We did cancel kids' ministry, so welcome, young children. You guys are doing amazing. I'm so glad you guys get to hear and be part of this message as well. So um, we have some incredible things happening in this text. A lot of them are, a lot of these things are well-known stories. Again, we're coming through what is traditionally the Christmas story, but there's some amazing things. The most notable of the extraordinary uh, feats is this story of this star that seems to be defying natural law and have a mind of its own. It's a really interesting thing, and you could go deep into studying all And maybe you have. And so some of you have studied this star. Um, I'm, not, I'm barely going to scratch the surface of what you probably have discovered, okay? So we're really going to go based on what we see in the text today. We're going to talk a little bit about that later, but I don't, want to miss, I don't want to miss some of the significant details, so I'm going to really talk through details. We're going to talk through some of the characters that Matthew introduces for us because he is being meticulous again. As we mentioned in the introduction, this is sort of how Matthew is. He's meticulous in his record keeping and how he's writing this, and who he mentions to us here at the beginning of chapter 2. And so what he does by mentioning Herod at the open, verse 1, is he establishes a a historical anchor point again. Historical record tells us that Herod was an actual king in the time of Jesus. And so that's good for some skeptical minds to think, is the Bible even something we can count on? Is is it accurate? Well, Herod is a, a historical anchor point that Matthew gives us. But it's also something that would pique the Jewish reader's interest because, again, this was a Jewish audience that Matthew mainly had in mind. And they would be interested in this sort of thing. Look at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So pause there for just a moment. Two things that this establishes that it would be interesting for the Jews to read is that this is the city of Bethlehem, in the, not in the Galilee region, because there were actually two Bethlehems, right? This is why, this is why Matthew would be specific to say this is Bethlehem of Judea, the city of King David, which is why a Jew would say, okay, that's specific. That's where King David was born. This is 
messianic language. We're talking about the king who would come through the line of, of David. He was born in David's city, not Bethlehem of Galilee, but Bethlehem of Judea. And then secondly, like I already mentioned, this is taking place during the rule of Herod the Great. That was his nickname, Herod the Great, and he died in 4 B.C., History, history tells us this Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., so we're right around the time of Jesus' birth. This is making sense. Nobody actually knows the actual date of Jesus' birth, but it's around that time frame, the beginning of that new era. So Herod the Great, we're going to talk a little bit about him as a person. I'm going to work through these characters that Matthew mentions for us, and then we'll tie it all together. Herod the Great had a reputation for murdering just about anybody who threatened to usurp his rule as king. This is historical record. He, he was known for this, even his wife and children, which in fact, he did. So this Herod, Herod the Great, is somebody who had killed several of his close family members at the hint of them taking rule usurping, challenging his authority, and he would just, <laughs> you're gone. He didn't want to deal with it, so he would have them killed. This is what Herod is known for. Augustus, who was the Roman emperor of that time, he was quoted as saying this, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's saying something. Safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. This is who we're dealing with. But despite this, he actually did accomplish a lot. So his greatness, why he was called Herod the Great, was for several other incredible accomplishments. And so another commentator, D.A. Carson, said this, and if you want to take notes or write this down, it's also on the screen. He was wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal, an excellent administrator, and clever enough to remain in the good graces of successful or successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb, and his building projects, including the temple begun in 20 B.C., were admired even by his foes. So this Herod was also the Herod that began the building of the temple in that time, in that time period. But these are some incredible things. He was an evil man, but he accomplished great things politically, and that's why he was known as Herod the Great. That's the Herod that Matthew is telling us about surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. So we're going to leave him there for a moment. That's enough about Herod, just for a moment. And so next we have what's introduced to us in verse 1. It also says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So now we have introduced to us the Magi. So we have Herod, one of the characters that Matthew is careful to tell us, and now these wise men, or that's what we call them, but they are, they are magi. So let's start with what we know from the text itself, okay, about these men. Number one, they're coming from the east of Jerusalem. That tells us at least that amount of information. We don't actually know where they came from precisely. It doesn't say the, the country exactly, but history and some tradition and speculation tells us it's probably Babylon, a Babylonian nation. And so because of their interest in the stars specifically, that's something that has been deduced. We do know from places like the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, if you remember when we studied Daniel this past summer, Nebuchadnezzar had appointed Daniel 
as chief priest over magicians, enchanters, astrologers. In other words, he had appointed Daniel as chief priest over magi. That's who they were. The magi that are coming from the east at this point to worship Jesus are the same type of people that Nebuchadnezzar was calling on to interpret his dreams. These were magicians of that sort, not the kind we're used to today, but astrologers, reading the stars. These were enchanters. Those were the magi of Babylon, and they were the ones that Matthew is talking about. It's actually the word that we get our word magic from. So when we think of magic, it's, we can, that's the magi. But it's not the sleight of hand kind of stuff, and we can thank Disney for cutifying magic for all of us, and it's just a cute thing, right? But that's not what we're talking about. This is, this is serious, dark Babylonian magi were known to be steeped in the occult pagan practice of astrology and reading messages in the stars. If you happen to be here... And you read your horoscope this morning. It is not true. Okay? If there's a hint of truth to it, because you're surmising, well, that's me, that's my life, well, just know there is dark power behind that. It's, again, there's so much surface light and cuteness on the surface of all of these things so that, so that this deception is far easier. Under the surface of all of that, is, is serious pagan occultism. And so need to know that. But this was what we were dealing with. This is who the Magi were, which makes the story all the more incredible because these are the men that God uses to bring around Jesus in an amazing way, but they're not, uh, they're not your average Magi. <laughs> it's funny, though, as, as steeped as they were in that occult practice and the and the and really there is a there is a darkness there and there is a power a power there not the ultimate power of god but a power there even when nebuchadnezzar called on the best of them to interpret his dreams none of them could but daniel by the power of god spoke word for word the dream of dan of of nebuchadnezzar right isn't that interesting and we have this comparison and again matthew is giving us another comparison here of the world and its power and God and his power. The world and his plan and God and his sovereign plan. And we have it laid out for us here to sort of see side by side and make some decisions in our own life. Secondly, what we see about this is they, they were not particularly wise. In, in the scriptures, we're, we're, we're told that they are called magi, but there was really no extra wisdom about them and they were not kings. There's nothing about this that says they were kings. So we have these Christmas songs that say, we three kings of Orient. They weren't kings. They were, they were magi. In fact, they probably had a king uh, in their own country that they were coming and representing as they brought the gifts to Jesus. So, but the reason they were called wise is because of their study and the observation of the stars. And this was peculiar. It was interesting. It was beyond what most people had the knowledge of. And so because they studied these things, the, oh, these are, the, these are the wise magi. They have information that we don't have, but not that kind of wisdom. They came, thirdly, they came when they saw his star appear. We see that in the text. They began their journey when they saw the star appear. Look what it says. 
It says, and we'll read verse 1 again, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We saw his star when it rose. Now there's some mystery around what that means. What does it mean for us? What did they mean by the star rose? It came into view. They began to study this star. When it became visible to them, they saw it and made a decision to come and worship this king. Based on the text and some other things that we're going to look at, they could have traveled even thousands of miles to see Jesus. Thousands of miles in that day to see Jesus Christ. They didn't know he was Jesus Christ, but they had some other information, and they, based on what they had seen in the stars, and no, no doubt the mercy and the, and, the, and the providence of God bringing these men to be some of the first that worship Christ as king on earth. But in verse 7, we see some, some uh, interesting points that help us to figure this out. Verse 7, glance down there with me. It said that Herod called for a secret meeting. Verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And so because of the secret meeting, based on Herod's decree later in the chapter to kill children two years and under, we're kind of piecing this together and we're thinking it's possible that they saw the star at the birth of Christ and it's taken them two years to travel and get to Jesus. It's a long time. That's dedication and commitment, and it's, it's certainly a, a spectacular thing that, that is happening before us. But it's, it's, it's safe to say that the wise men were expecting a child about two years of age. So, so they, could have been, they could have been traveling that long, so let's just let that sit there. And fourthly, we gather from the gifts that they give near the end of our reading that they were probably extremely wealthy. So we're just trying to get some character around these guys, all right? They're wealthy. They brought what they had from their land. They brought gifts of gold, expenses, expensive spices. These things would be extremely expensive and rare. And of course, the number of gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh is the only place. It's the only source from which we have gathered that there are only three of these men. But again, that's the only. The Bible doesn't actually tell us how many of these were. Most tradition and history tells us that there's, there could have been up to a dozen or more of these guys traveling. But only three gifts are mentioned. So for decades, we, we have just settled on the fact that there must have been only three. Interestingly enough, there are, in history, you can find three men's names. They've actually boiled this down to believe that they know the names of three of them. And so because of that, that's also helped kind of with the tradition that there are only three. And you, got, you can feel free to look that up if you want on your own time. So those are just a few observations about the Magi and about Herod. There's another group of people that Matthew introduces for the first time in this scene. I want to talk about them as well. So look at verse 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So that's the third group of people, is the chief priests and the scribes. So just briefly, 
the scribes, or excuse me, in response to the inquiry about the Magi, or that the Magi made to Herod, Herod being really not a Jew himself, so that's another part of history. He's, he's representing Jewish people. He's the king of the Jews in that territory, but he's not actually a Jew himself. He's a hired pawn of Rome to keep order in a Roman city, acting as a Jewish king, but not a Jewish king. He's not Jewish. And so he's got really uh, not a whole lot to, to say about all of this. So he gathers the professionals, similar to what Nebuchadnezzar does, and he gathers the chief priests and the scribes. So the scribes are those leaders of Israel whose job it was to know and apply God's law. This was their job. They knew God's law inside and out. So they would be the people that Herod would want to call and say, what can you tell me about a prophecy? What can you tell me about a king that would be born in, the, in Bethlehem? What, do you, what can you tell me about this scenario? And so this is who he would call on. And what is key here is that they knew what the law and the prophets said about Christ and his coming. They knew every bit of that word. And then the chief priests were, <coughs> excuse me, they were basically ex-high priests. So that's what would be, and, and during this time, Herod would often replace the high priests regularly. And so there was a whole pool of ex-high priests, and these were the chief priests that would be gathered. But again, the primary thing being that they were all zealous for the law of God. That's who this group was that, that Herod called together. And the reason this is significant here is because this is the very first of many run-ins between Jesus and the scribes and the chief priests. If you have read Matthew before, you know that Matthew, more than any of the other writers, is constantly telling us a, a story between Jesus and the chief priests and scribes. And this is the first of them. But Jesus is just a baby here. And it's amazing that before he's even walking, the trouble that he causes with the scribes and the Pharisees. But this is the first, so it is significant. And Herod calls on them, and this is going to be the first of many encounters. But this is, this is extremely significant. The attitude, the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, these chief priests, is indicative of every other encounter with Christ. How they respond in this, it's a reflection of their hearts. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 5. John 5, 37. Jesus says something specific about how these religious leaders view God's word. And it's indicative of what we see here in Matthew and how they're treating this prophecy of Christ and how they remain immobile and do nothing about the knowledge that they have in their head. John 5.37 says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. This is the very same group of people that have God's word, and have been searching the Scriptures, Herod goes to them because they are the ones that have the knowledge of the Scriptures, yet they don't come to Jesus. In fact, they stay put in Jerusalem. Herod leans on the experts of Scripture to know where the Christ would be born, and they know exactly where he's going to be born. 
Isn't that interesting? They know he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They quote a prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's their response to Herod. They brought Herod the word of God. Saying this is what we know about this prophecy. But they had not sought the scriptures for Christ himself. They are full of the knowledge of the word of God. But they are not looking for Christ in God's word. And that is always, always a problem. With all of this knowledge... Who is it that actually shows up to worship Christ? It's the shepherds. Remember from another account, from Luke's account. It's the shepherds that are poor and outcast. And they end up the privilege of seeing Christ at his birth. And it's the magi traveling hundreds of miles, potentially thousands, guided by a moving star. Not a movie, a moving star. Just in case you heard me say movie star, a moving star, they come to worship him while the experts of the law choose to remain ignorant. So, it's a bunch of information dump about different groups of people. We have the Magi, we have Herod, and you just have a little little bit of information about the scribes. And all of these are worth studying further, and they're all in Scripture, careful with rabbit trails. You can go all over the place, but in Scripture, there's much to study here. But I want to go back and try to tie all this together and find out what Matthew and ultimately the Holy Spirit was trying to teach us by writing this down for us. So firstly, we know Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. At some point around the time of his birth, a star appears in the sky and the Magi, who were already studying the stars, because that's what they do, they began to observe that particular star. Now, it's possible that the Magi do have some knowledge of prophetic Scripture, maybe because they they were very literate libraries, I'm sure, full of all sorts of literature, potentially even having access to some of the prophecies. They may have known about some of this stuff in connecting these pieces. But all we know from the text is that from their observation of the heavens and this particular star, they conclude that a significant enough figure is being born, so significant that he is divine and worthy of worship. So they come specifically to Jerusalem to find a king and worship him. The quote that they are said to have said all throughout the city is this, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They become evangelists in the city of Jerusalem with these words, So they go to Jerusalem because that would have made sense for the birth of a king over the Jews. It makes sense for these magi to go there first. And unknowingly, they begin to evangelize the city with the news of this new king. So I just want you to picture this. These strange men from the east come in on camelback and potentially multitude of them. And they're just asking around and inquiring with these words. We have seen his star. (laughs) And we have come to worship him. Where is this king? We want to find him. And of this news, as it spreads all over the city, 
the word gets to Herod at some point, and he is deeply troubled, the Scripture tells us. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and then he assembled the chief priests. But he was troubled. He was troubled by what? By the news that the Magi had begun to spread around the city. That there is a king. Remember what he does to his family members when he finds out that they're even thinking about usurping his authority? So what do you think he's thinking now? And what kind of news is he going to spread around Jerusalem now that he's heard a group of magi spreading all through the city that there's somebody else worthy of worshiping that's better than him? So you can imagine then the actual turmoil, trouble Because that's the word. It's not just talking about he was just a little upset. The word for trouble here speaks of an inner turmoil because of the news. He is troubled on the inside. And he's not just a little upset. Why is he troubled? Because his rule was threatened. Not only is his rule over Jerusalem threatened, but the rule, I truly believe, over his own heart. The rule of his own heart, the the gods that he worships are being threatened. The idols that he serves are, uh, there's a a challenger in the ring now. He's not far outside the city, and he's not even two years old. And he is troubled because of the news of a king. Herod is threatened ultimately because Jesus is the true king. That's often where the threat happens in our lives, too. When we contemplate true kingship, the implications of Jesus Christ being the king of the universe, the king of the world, the king of every human being that ever exists, the king, he rules everything. And he has a word, and his word is law, and his word is true which means everything else compared to it is false. It's not, and he is holy. All of these things are such a threat to, to human beings and to sinful, the sinful, broken world that we live in. It's also beautiful, but you don't see that until you see the gospel. That's, it's accessible by the gospel, but it's a threat at first. Jesus Christ is either a threat to your way of life or he is your life. I truly believe that's something that we should be chewing on. He is either a threat to your way of life or he is your life. So think about that. Chew on that. Ask the Lord now, okay, take this thought. All that's going on with Herod, Jesus is coming into town. Why is Herod so threatened? Because Jesus is the king. And he doesn't want to let go of his authority. He doesn't want to get off of his throne. For anybody. So that's what I want us to think about. Jesus Christ is either a threat to your He is either a threat to your way of life, and that may be some of you in this room. He's threatening some way of your life. Something you don't want to change, something that you don't want to give up, something that you value and love and you want to continue doing because it's your way of life. It's an idol for you, it's something you worship, it's a God. But it's not Christ, and Christ is the only king. Or he is your life, and I hope he's your life. So some professing Christians today spend far too much time trying to figure out how to blur the lines on this issue. So people can become 
more like the scribes in this story. Develop a comfort with the knowledge of Jesus that you have. You have knowledge of Christ. You even know the scriptures like the scribes did. Even knowing the very scriptures that speak of him, but you do not run to him to worship him. Just like the scribes. They knew all about him, but they stayed right there and they were immovable. Had no desire to worship Christ, but were very comfortable with the knowledge of him. At least Herod is clear on his stance. You know the scripture that says, I'd, re- I'd wish you were rather cold or hot, but not lukewarm. I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's a similar scenario here. At least, at least Herod had a clear understanding, and, and he was an enemy. And then you have the worshipers on this side, and then you have the, the scribes in the middle. So we have these scenarios in our culture today. We have the nominal Christians, the Christians in name only. And we have the overt enemies of the king who have made clear that their allegiance is with the prince of darkness. We have that too. And it's becoming it's seemingly a more and more um, visible thing today, is it not? Those who make their stance known that their allegiance is not just against Christ but with Satan. So we have that. We have both of those in our world today. And the overt enemies of Christ are making it clear that there is every effort to destroy life, just like Herod. To destroy life and just snuff it out in in any way possible because Christ represents life. Life is Christ. So any form of life or innocence or beauty that comes from God, the enemy will do anything he can to just end it. Bring it to an end. Spiritually speaking, both of these scenarios are dangerous and damnable. Both the Herod side of the enemy and then the lukewarmness, they're both damnable positions to be in. Because neither have surrendered to the lordship of Christ. And lordship is what it comes down to, isn't it? Isn't that simple? Just think about that. Lordship. The lordship of Christ. Not just being comfortable with him. But, it, but is he lord? And in terms of how Satan uses each of these, we have, we have everything from abortion, right? The, the snuffing out of the most innocent representatives of our human life the unborn, and the murder of Christians around the world. We have that side, enemies of Christ, sided with Satan, seeking to murder and kill and snuff out life. And then we have lukewarm churches that are full of people who are fat on the word. I'm not talking about New City Church. I love you guys. But if you're here and you're fat on the word and you're, a part of the, and you're, and you're sidled up with the scribes, and you're just comfort with the, comfortable with the knowledge you have, but you don't run to Christ to worship him, then you are in a dangerous spot no matter what building you sit in. So don't be there. Both of these are dangerous places to be fat on the word and, and think that you are in Christ, but you're actually not. Because you're trying to figure out how you can make Christ softer for yourself and not such a threat. See, Jesus was a threat to Herod, and he did it by just snuffing. What lukewarm Christians do when Jesus is a threat, we just figure out ways to blur the lines, to still read the Word and be a part of a Christian church and be comfortable, be somewhere in there, like pretend to be part of both worlds. But Christ sees through all of that. 
there is no question that Jesus is a threat to the world. And that's something that's, in, that's remarkable, about, remarkable about this text, is that already, not long after the birth of Christ, while Jesus is most likely still in a, he, yeah, he's still in a small town outside of Jerusalem, the king is threatened and he's rocked to the core. That's something significant about Jesus. I don't know anybody else who has that kind of an impact on a world and still to this day has an impact on this world just by mentioning his name. Isn't that incredible? There is nobody like Jesus. And he is a threat to the world, but he's also a threat to the natural and unregenerate life. And he feels that way. He feels like a threat until that moment, right? And we know that there's a moment where the king of kings, the judge of the world, the, where you feel this condemnation, there's a sw- and, and God is so gracious and merciful to give that switch and to say, now come to me because I'm also, now I'm not just a judge, I'm a shepherd. You come to me and you believe upon my son, Christ, and I'll become to you a father. And that's God's doing, his timing, his way of when that But all I can say is Scripture says, come to him. In this story, we have those that are going to him. We have those that are not. We have those that think they have and they haven't because they don't seek Christ in the Scriptures. So we have sages and astrologers traveling thousands of miles, costing them probably millions in modern-day funds, speaking of the Magi, all because of Jesus. We've got an entire city troubled because... Now, it says that Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, they were probably troubled because of Herod, right? They're, that's probably part of the trouble. They know what Herod's probably going to do because he's upset and he's kind of a little baby about his position on the throne. And so who knows what he's going to do in Jerusalem because of this threat? So all of Jerusalem is in turmoil. We've got Herod himself enraged, squirming on his throne because of a baby born in Bethlehem that he knows is the true king of kings. We say that phrase in Christianity, he's the king of kings. Well, this is kind of what it means practically. Kings of this earth have nothing on Jesus. Nothing. And this is a great scenario to look at. What does that mean, king of kings? The most kingly of kings is nothing (laughs) compared to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And what's happening while all this is going on? What is God doing? He is sovereignly seeing to it that the Son of God comes into this world and is welcomed by the exact people that God has intended for all eternity, orchestrating all of it, and Jesus is at the center stage. Jesus is at the center of this story. While all of this upset is happening, it's, it's because of Christ. And I love that Matthew makes that clear here at the beginning. It's already, already it's been about Jesus Jesus had been at the center of the genealogy of, the, of, of Israel. And here he is still at the center of, of this story. So we'll move on just a little bit. Let's see what the Magi do after this secret meeting with Herod. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So, 
There's no way for me to really comment on this accurately. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit baffled by the star. All right? It really is an incredible thing. When you don't just let it fly through your mind and you try to think about it a little bit, it's, it's daunting. I wasn't there. Nobody else that I know of was there. And this is, except for those that were there, I mean, you know. But this is nothing less than supernatural, right? This is an incredible moment. The best we can tell, though, they came to Jerusalem because this is where the star was shining as they looked from east to west, okay? They're in the east. They're looking towards the west, they travel that direction. They get to Jerusalem, and then they go into this meeting with Herod. They're, we don't know how long they've been in Jerusalem, but they're in Jerusalem. And why are they asking? Why are they with Herod? Why are they doing all this stuff? At some point, it seems as though the star stops being as clear as to where to go next. They come out of their meeting with Herod, and what it seems the text is saying is, boom, there it is again. And they are filled with joy. Did you guys catch that? So it's just kind of imagine this, this scene. And who knows how long it was again, but they, they, they talk with Herod. Herod draws the, pulls them in. There's all this stuff, all this talk going on. Herod's upset. They're probably thinking, we need to get out of here. They get out, and the star begins to lead them again, and they are filled with great joy. Isn't that awesome? So what is this joy Can you feel their joy? Think about what that would have been like, even just for a moment. Maybe similar to the children of Israel, what it felt like every day to see the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness to the promised land. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, okay, when's this cloud going to turn to fire again? And when, like, How awesome to know the presence of the Lord leading you. And so they are filled with joy. And I just wish I could have seen it. But joy, because the journey wasn't over yet, they hadn't got to where they were going. They still need to see the king. They haven't seen him yet. They saw a king. He was a big letdown. (laughs) Right? Another comparison, they spent time with Herod, no fun. They want to see the real king. So the journey isn't over yet. There's the star. They get to continue moving. Joy because they were not going to be left without direction. Now they get to continue the journey and take it all the way to the end. Matthew Henry says it like this, Israel was led by a pillar of fire to the promised land, the wise men by a star to the promised seed who is himself the bright and morning star. These similarities like weaving all through Scripture of how God leads his people. Now, we don't have any encounter or actual record of the Magi. You know, we know that they historically were pagan. But it is no doubt that God is working in these men, leading them to Christ, to worship Christ. They weren't worshiping other gods at this point. God had worked through the false teaching and the false and all the lies of their religion to ultimately bring them to Christ. And that's, that's possible today. It happens all the time. 
And maybe you are seeking some other religion or you have some other thing that you have been seeking after. And all this time now it's boiling down to God is leading you to Christ. And using all these other things that you've been thinking, spirituality, all this other, and it's all about Jesus. And that's ha- maybe that's happened to a friend in your life, but this is, this is something that does happen. It's happening here. And then verse 11 says, Going into the house, they saw the child with, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So just a couple little details. They go into a house, not a stable. Notice that? They go into a house, not a stable. They're no longer at the manger scene. This is not the nativity anymore. So the child is older. They go into a house and they see him with his mother, Mary. They don't see a newborn baby. They see a small child. So sort of presents a problem with some of the Christmas songs we sing and the nativity and all that stuff. But that's no big deal. Um, <laughs> it's the activity in the house that is most significant. That's what we want to think about. Upon seeing the child, the Magi, think about it, they're in the house, perhaps dozens of them. What do they do? They fall down. That's what it says. They go into the house, they see the, the child with his mother, and they fall down to worship him. One by one being begin to open treasures. We know of three of them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But these were treasures from their land, most likely. This was also customary to do in honor of this child king. Again, none of which they gave to Herod. That's significant. They had all of this stuff while they passed through Jerusalem. And there's Herod, the great Herod. He didn't get any gifts. Who got the gifts? Jesus. Matthew is making these comparisons for us to see. This is the right posture for a Christian. What we're seeing here at the end of this with the Magi, bowing down, worshiping Christ, this is the right posture. They are down at the feet of Christ. Now I'm talking about not the right posture as in we all should all be bowing down physically at the feet of Jesus. Clearly not what I'm saying. But the posture of our hearts, the idea of our lives being that of worshiping, laying down our lives before Christ. Worshiping Jesus. Giving our all and sparing nothing. That's the kind of activity that we see in this house. They're laying gifts at his feet. They have just spent so much time and resources to get there and they still are giving more. Having no fear of how he threatens our rule, but freely giving way to his rule. And that's what they're doing in the house here. This is right. This is the right way. There's even some significance in the gifts themselves because gold was a common gift for a king. We can say that these men were acknowledging the kingship of Jesus. He is king. Frankincense was an incense recognizing the the smoke of incense that would rise to God from the altar of the temple. Recognizing that he, in fact, is God. And myrrh was an embalming perfume that was used for those who had died to prepare their burial. All three of these pointing to the ministry of Christ, not only the deity of Christ, that he is God, but his ministry, that even at his birth they're recognizing this king is a sacrificing king. 
he's going to sacrifice his own life. He has a mission. He has a purpose. He's here to do something. He is God, and he is king, and he is savior of the world. Matthew gives us a lot to think about here. There's a lot, right? There's been a lot of information, but I hope what we're all seeing is this monumental impact that Christ had and has still on this world today and how he brings every man and woman ultimately to an impasse, a place of decision. Sometimes it's a daily decision. It's a decision that some of you guys can remember. At one point, you were brought to this place of impasse. Christ, King, or me? Who's Lord? Me? Or is Jesus King? Is he Lord? And making that decision. Herod made a decision. The scribes made their decision. And the Magi, who had paid more, lost more, gave more, and yet they were filled with exceeding joy and worshiped Christ because they realized that God had given to the world this amazing gift in his Son. And he is worth laying everything down for. So let's do that, brothers and sisters. Let's do that. Think about that. Meditate on that for a moment. Think about a place, that place of decision, a place of impasse. Maybe even if you are in Christ, think about the glory of Jesus here, the beauty of Christ, and what maybe we still withhold, and what maybe we still say he is not worthy of having this part of my life. Even this idea of, of, of a threat. What area do you still see he's, he's, like, he's a threat to you? He's, a th- you're, he's threatening your time. He's threatening your resources. He's threatening y- your, your commitments, your fun. Is he a threat to those things? If so, then you're like Herod. And you're being like Herod. But rather, Christ is worthy of all of that. And we want him to come in and rule those things. So if you need to do that today, let, just let go of those things and, and begin to trust him. Lay it all down. What areas of your life are you treating as though Jesus is just threatening them? Or are you being more like the Magi who you're just saying, here, here's, it all, here's all I have. And I'll travel thousands of miles. And you're, wor- you're worthy of worship. You are king. You are the Christ. You are everything. Amen, church? So as we go into our time of communion, meditate on that. There's opportunity to repent here. There's opportunity to worship. Just worship him. He's king. Think about these comparisons and the, the things that Matthew has laid side by side for us and ask the Lord, where do I need to apply this to my heart today? How do I need to live out this obedience to Jesus. Father, I thank you that your word is good, it's true, and I'm asking, Lord, that if we're coming, any of us, to a place of impasse, maybe for some it's, it's far more serious in that it's, it's right now it's, it's death or life, it's truth or false. Don't let anybody be deceived any longer, Lord. And Holy Spirit, draw to yourself those who are yours and who have been Christ's since the foundation of the world, that there would be surrender and belief and faith 
and the one true God, Jesus Christ, and that you'd bring salvation to any who needs it. Absolute and total surrender. Thank you that you save sinners like us. I also pray, I, I pray for this church body, Lord, that you would help us to be a, a church that cares about holiness and worship and that we would be far less like Herod and not, not like these scribes, but, but we would be like these magi in the sense that we come and lay it all down, even all of our misbeliefs and use whatever it takes, God to bring us to a place of just saying, you are Lord, you are King, and we fall down at your feet. We worship you. We don't want to see, oh, we don't want to see any of this as a threat to our lives, but just as a joy, a joy to say, Christ, take all of it. My family, my, my children, my time, my job, my resources, my health, Everything. Let nothing be an idol. We thank you, God, for your word. Hide it deep in our hearts. Deal with us gently, but also deal with us truthfully. Thank you that you are a good, sovereign king. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We worship you now. We remember you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.